if your faith is predicated on a Jesus that has not shown up in history yet, but you believe one day will, I think you need to acknowledge that that, that, is, a, that is a different Christianity from the historical Christianity that is rooted in the person of Jesus who walked through ancient Palestine. Hmm. And, and if you're hoping for something different, but I think at some level you should acknowledge that, that you have now stepped outside of the orthodox faith of Christ that's, that's grounded in the person of Jesus. Go! If- <laughs> and I thought you were... I, ah. Titus, this is a, a fine balancing act. It's a tightrope and you throw me off balance and I don't know yeah. what to say. This goal. is that Jesus podcast, and for some reason, um, we're back and we're doing this again. Uh, we have a great interview with um, uh, an author talking about things, um, talking about the end times. Wow, that um, was very specific. <laughs> yes, I, I think it's great. Uh, Titus, what are your views on the end times? Well, I am a partial preterist. Last time I checked, which was a little while back. And I don't really know how things are going to go down. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Mm-hmm. I, The only thing I am is I'm an anti-pan-millennialist. Because you don't think it's going to pan out. It's no. Gonna, what I don't it's going like, to really hit the fan. <laughs> I don't like it when people say, oh, yeah, just, I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all just going to pan out in the end. <laughs> it's like, not a good joke, but it's kind of what I believe. Well, the the problem with it is that people say that, and it's like, then I don't have to engage with with um, apocalyptic literature in the Bible, and I don't really have to worry about it. And that's kind of, maybe I'm objecting to it because that's kind of where I've been in the past, and I'm trying to do better. So, so you're engaging with Revelation these days? Um, not super recently. Although I did, you know, I read this whole book that the guy wrote, um, Upside Down Apocalypse, and we'll yeah. we'll hear about that. But I want to hear about your um your unveiling last weekend with the uh, the the cult you joined for the weekend. Or, or whatever well, it was, sounded prayer retreat. Really, it sounded really We have to be bad. more specific. I, if we say Titus joined a cult, we have to specify which, which cycle this true. is. <laughs> that's true. I, I apparently went to join a cult and unveiled myself, which doesn't sound great. <laughs> um, I went to Pennsylvania and joined some, some bros, Joel Martin and some other people, for a weekend prayer. And it was really, really good. It was sort of the type of deal where, you know, you go off into the woods with, with your eyes wide and your heart expectant mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, to meet the Lord. So back in the day, um, I went to Sharon Mennonite Bible Institute. This was like 2005, 2006, and went with Mr. and was there with Mr. Um, Mr. Joel Martin, and we went to a prayer retreat. Him and Val and myself, Val Yoder, went to a prayer retreat um, for the weekend. And it was really good, really different. And I have a feeling this is like we did this in an auditorium and we had like little lectures and then prayer time and then another lecture and then more prayer time. What Mm. do you think makes a good prayer retreat? If you're going to get away and spend 24 hours or 48 hours or 72 hours in prayer, either by yourself or with a community, what makes it work? So I would say what we did was pretty ideal. I had no idea what the schedule was going into it. I actually got to drive up there with Friedrich, who I'd love to have on the podcast. Like We had four hours of just like nonstop, intense, philosophical, and theological conversation. <laughs> for solitude. It was, it was wonderful. It was, I mean, it, it was amazing. <laughs> and then we did it the whole way back until he fell asleep. Um, Wait, which one of you was driving? But <laughs> Anyhow, go ahead. I was driving. <laughs> He felt, yeah. Uh, um, so we, we, yeah, we, we got there and there's some other guys there, including this guy in a tunic who kind of rides around on a bicycle and preaches the gospel and is sort of a, a hippie monk type situation. He was actually, he had a really crazy story where he was a BMXer when he was a teenager and got really high up in that world. And then he got into fashion hmm. and was making tons of money. Like he knew the guy who started Supreme and like a lot of other 
really big fashion brands. And then he had this this Christian missionary guy come and try to convert him. And like over a period of a couple days, he became a Christian. Like threw all of his stuff into the in, over uh, you know a bridge into the river, and just like left everything to be this radical kind of wandering prophet. Mm. So he was there, had just an amazing story, and that's he needed a lot of the weekend. Yeah, I I do. He's actually I think going to come to Charlottesville soon. Um, but super interesting guy, and he did a lot of sharing over the weekend. Um, so that was good. But we got there, so there's him, Joel, and, and you know a few other people that I'd met, some other guys I'd, I'd not met before. And Joel's like, all right, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read a few verses from James, and we're all going to go find a spot in the woods and, and be alone for four hours. <laughs> so he read this, these verses, and it's like, all right, we'll, we'll meet back here. Actually, it was, it was like five, and he said we'll meet back here at eight, so like three hours. And... Okay. So we did that, and I hadn't done that in a really long time. Like in my late teens, early 20s, I would kind of wander off in the woods for an hour or two and yeah. and just kind of like try to meet with God, you know? And I hadn't done that in so long, so it was really, really good. Um, yeah, I could, I could go into detail about some of my mystical experiences, but it'd probably be a little creepy. So we <laughs> won't do that. and then we kind of gathered around a campfire and um ate a few nuts and drank some juice for dinner (laughs) and uh just kind of went into like a a really spontaneous time of prayer and worship which was amazing until like 11 p.m and then listened to this wandering prophet guy shares testimony or me and another guy stayed up with him until mm-hmm. after midnight just talking yeah. to him woke up did it all again in the morning the, the next morning i was i was pretty wore out i was like all right i think i'm kind of kind of done but lo and behold uh joel was not done so <laughs> so we prayed and worshiped the lord again for a few hours and then we had uh, a wonderful breakfast including some bacon and eggs that um, one of my friends found in a dumpster. So Solid. that's how it went. Yeah, it was it was really and, really. And it was good. only like it was only like a twelve hour thing, like an overnight and morning. Yeah, okay. uh, more like yeah, twenty hours or eighteen hours. Okay. So it was pretty short. Most of the people were from Pennsylvania, except for except gotcha. for us. Um, and just since then, like when I pray, it feels like there's this familiarity with God that I think I had lost. Like I. I think a lot of people, and, and this is how it is for me a lot of the time, when you, when you go to pray, it feels like there's kind of just this wall, you know, you can't get through it, you can't seem mm-hmm. to to immediately just connect with God, it, it takes a lot of work. But when you go through a weekend like that, like it feels like that wall just comes down, and, and now when I pray it just feels natural, because like I was up in the woods low-key bored out of my mind for hours with nothing to do except pray you practiced Um, you practiced for a while figured out how to do it again yeah and now it feels natural for a while yeah it does and man it there's something about that sort of a weekend that i would love to reproduce like i wish that i could do something like that here in Virginia and do something like that regularly, especially like a lot of these, a lot of these men were kind of seasoned in, in prayer, but to find people, believers who, who really are hungry for God, but haven't ever done anything like this. Like I would say most Mm -hmm. believers have probably not prayed for an hour by themselves ever in their life. I'm going to, I'm going to say probably a lot of our (laughs) listeners (laughs) that would would fall in that category. Maybe even you drew. (laughs) No, uh, let me, you were were an ascetic time. You you did some asceticism for a while. So probably not. And, and like you, it's been quite a while too. Um, I used to try back in Thailand. I used to try and take half a day every new year um, because new year was a big holiday for Thai people and, and get out to the mountains and the jungle and, and that was good, but as the older I've gotten, it's actually gotten harder for me. So I must be doing life wrong. Um, but yeah, yeah I I, sure. I had Denny Keniston back in the day had this sermon, and I at the time we thought it was a great sermon, probably worth checking out. Uh, a season alone with God, 
because mm. anytime Brother Denny speaks, it's with God, glory. Mm. And um, Amen. and he um, talked about just real practically what it looks like to take time alone with God for an hour or six hours or 24 hours. Yeah, I remember when, once I got away when I was looking at some life decisions I was trying to make and got away to a camper trailer on the edge of Lake Superior because that's where we lived and um, sat there praying, reading John Piper books, listening to John Piper mm. sermons, praying some more, praying some praying more. to John Piper. <laughs> <laughs> the couple whose trailer I was borrowing actually went to um, John Piper's church. They were members mm-hmm. there, so I, I was kind of surrounded. But um, it was really good. I think in some ways it gave me, again, now I don't want to get too much to my own story, but it gave me a sense of false confidence that, okay, I've checked this box. I've done my season alone with God. And now whatever I do going forward is going to be just the right thing. It's there was kind of an arrogance. <laughs> yeah. Cause some of the, some of what I thought I was supposed to do then that I learned from that weekend wasn't actually the case and mm-hmm. it kind of fell through, but I don't regret it either. So yeah, I should get out and do that again this summer. I really think I should. I mean, it it really is what I'm interested in when it comes to the the Christian faith and and what I feel is is my calling and what I'm supposed to kind of facilitate is just to encourage people to get alone with God or to have sort of these group experiences. Like, I don't know, I I, I kind of have this this vision for like these these people just kind of withdrawing to the woods <laughs> for for hours and and just like that that expectation that something can happen here we can actually experience something real yeah. and tangible and life-changing where there's it's not about sermons it's not about it's not even about academia in that moment it's I don't know, man. Like, I, I would mystical. love to do it. Yeah, I, I want to do it regularly. I just, I don't know who would do it with me. Um, the, it's, the, there's something there that, like, is the core of mm-hmm. of what I believe following Jesus is. And yes, then we need to go out in the real world and live in yep. community and, and make disciples, of, of course. But, man, there, there's something there that, that like, I, I can't even put into words that, that, I just think it's so is super important. Um, so if anyone's yeah. in Virginia and wants to do this, hit me up. No, I I would come out to Virginia for that. Uh, don't quote me on that, but <laughs> no, right. I, well, I'm right with you. Let's let's keep talking, brother, and let's yeah. keep um, talking with uh, Mr. Jeremy. Totally drawing a blank on his last name. Um, Our guest, yes, the guest who wrote a book that's really good, and um, yeah, let's turn it over to him. Shall we? It's a real privilege to be here with Jeremy Duncan. Uh, Jeremy is uh, the lead pastor at the Commons Church up there in Canada, uh, Calgary, Canada, right, Jeremy? That's correct. And you've been serving as pastor there since 2014? Yeah, I actually started the church in 2014 and uh, have been here ever since. Nice. And what prompted you to start um, a church up in Canada? So, well, I'm, I'm from Canada. I'm from um, east side of the country in Toronto. Uh, pastored there for a couple of years, uh, then ended up moving out to Calgary to work for a church out here. And uh, I did that for a decade at, at another community here in the city. And then slowly during that time, um, I mean, the backstory is uh, during that time, I was the young adults pastor, um, started mm-hmm. a service that was focused on sort of that 20s age group. I was in my early 30s. And then over that decade, that community sort of grew with me, um, got a little older, started having kids, and sort of was no longer functioning as the young adult ministry of that, uh, that initial church. And so they actually approached me and said, hey, maybe it's time for you guys to sort of like move out on your own and try your own thing. Um, and they were incredibly supportive with that. So that's what happened is that community of 20-somethings grew, got older, um, and then eventually we, we decided to plant our own church uh, with the support of, of the church that we started with him. And some of that was just demographics and age, mm-hmm. and some of that was our own thinking around theology and how to form community, and it all kind of came together around commons. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Nice. And um, we're, we're here to talk about your book, but just a, a little bit more background. Um, most of our listeners are Anabaptist. I interacted with conservative Anabaptist groups for years. My wife is Mennonite. 
Um, are you coming from an Anabaptist perspective yourself, or is that an influence, or none of the above? Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely an influence. So I'm not Anabaptist. My roots of my personal story in Christianity, so my family's not uh, particularly religious, but I first got connected with the Jesus story through the Pentecostal tradition, okay. uh, sort of that, that charismatic experience of God. That's how I got started. I went into ministry, and I felt like I was a little unequipped having been to um, a Pentecostal Bible college. So then I went and I did more grad work, uh, finished my master's, and slowly, and this is not a, I don't mean this pejoratively in terms of the Pentecostal tradition, but um, as I moved more into academia, uh, you know, I felt my ties to that Pentecostal tradition uh, weakening, and so I explored sure. beyond that. I ended up planting the church with the Evangelical Covenant Church, okay. uh, which is a, a smaller group uh, in Canada. It's not, not uh, very familiar for a lot of people, but in the States, um, people might be familiar with that. And it's sort of, um, ironically, sort of a third way between mainline and evangelical, at least traditionally, yeah. that's where it kind of has sat. Um, and so, because of that sort of, I, I was drawn to that kind of openness and that sort of pulling in of different streams, because over the sort of 20 years that I've been in ministry, um, I have been influenced a lot by Anabaptism, not so much the pure expression of Anabaptist theology and ecclesiology, but very deeply by the nonviolence and mm-hmm. the um, active pacifism of the Anabaptist tradition. And so that has, has influenced me greatly. I ended up doing my master's writing primarily about René Girard, um, who's not an Anabaptist, but is a nonviolent mm-hmm. uh, thinker and philosopher. And so as soon as you start going down that road of, of nonviolence and uh, nonviolent philosophy, Anabaptism kind of creeps in from the side. And so that's why I ended up working with uh, Harold Press on yes. this book. So I'm, I'm not an Anabaptist, definitely have been influenced there. Uh, but but a lot of my focus has been on nonviolence, so, so that's the that's the connection there. Great, yeah, and that's why I asked with the the book, um, uh, the upside down apocalypse. That whole concept of upside downness is is really central. You find that popping up in a lot of Anabaptist Mennonite writings. Um, but I've never heard those two words paired together: apocalypse and upside down. <laughs> Published by Harold Press, and it's um, uh, coming out. Well, we'll touch on that at the end, but it's coming out very soon um, from this conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of excited. I'm, I'm uh, sort of a first-time author and uh, had some, uh, as a pastor, I had, I would say during COVID, the first six months, I was overwhelmed with stuff to do to try to move online. Mm. And then you kind of sit around, you're like, well, what do I do with this? So I took, <laughs> uh, I took some time to write a book uh, during COVID while I was uh, away from my community in the ways that I was more familiar with. So at least it kept me busy. Yeah. So your book is um, The Upside Down Apocalypse, and it's it's a journey through the book of Revelation from a very different perspective than most of us would have grown up. Do you mind framing your journey th- to Revelation and through it from how you might have grown up hearing about it or your your time with the um, Pentecostal tradition? Like, what did it look to you, like to you? How did What did it mean to you, the book of Revelation? Yeah, so again, I didn't grow up around a lot of church um, in terms of my family of origin. But that's not to say I was unfamiliar with Christianity or with the book of Revelation as a kid. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm a Canadian. That's sort of the, the water that we swim in is Christianity is always yep. around. And as a, even as a kid, I remember our family going to church for, you know, Christmas or Easter. And then sometimes that would stick and we would stick around for a few months and then we would slowly drift away. So I definitely had this sort of awareness of these stories, but in the... And this is where I'm not sure whether that was, you know, because I'm not even sure what types of churches we went to as a kid. I think they were just whatever was in the neighborhood. But there was in the background, certainly not as a a primary experience for me, but there was in the background that sort of left behind narrative of rapture, of um, end times, of, you know, you got to be ready because at some point, you know, the world might come to an end and and you're going to be faced with God and you're going to have to answer for that. But it wasn't like a central experience of my interaction with Christianity mm-hmm. until, you know, I, it was late in high school. A friend invited me to church. I got involved, and, and I went to a, a Pentecostal Bible college. And there, I would say in that tradition, the, the narrative of end times 
um, was never front and center because in the Pentecostal tradition, you were always sort of focused on the experience of the moment of spirit and being sure. caught up in that. Um, that was the really central piece. But there was always this sort of, um, in the background, this profound graciousness of God that comes and meets us in these ecstatic experiences will one day sort of turn on us a little bit <laughs> and you better be in the right spot. And that's sort of, I think, the framework that I had when I came to Revelation in my academic work was there's a disconnect between the way we experience and the way we talk about Jesus and in that Pentecostal tradition, the way we talk about spirit and the way that we believe God will ultimately deal with the world and deal with us. And that's a lot of what I was trying to address in my academic work and then in this book is we think differently about God in the Gospels than we do about God in the future. And mm -hmm. that, that just seems untenable to me to worship the Jesus of the Gospels, but then believe in a Jesus who will come back, who feels very disconnected from that Jesus. Yeah. And so that's a lot of, of what I was trying to sort of reconnect for myself, I think, initially, and then trying to do that in a way that was helpful for other people. Hmm. So, a, a primary motivation was connecting the Jesus of the Gospels with with the end times God, whatever that looked like to you. And I, I know from myself, growing up in a conservative evangelical church and then in a more Anabaptist setting, um, it very much was like this this deadline. We didn't talk too much about it, except maybe during revival meetings. This this deadline down the road. That somehow we're we're working toward all of our our hymnody is is around you know laying up treasures and you know um, making crowns to you know someday mansion over the hilltop, and you don't you don't say in your book that there is no end of times, but you turn it on its head. So why don't you talk about like the the basic thrust of the book and what from your perspective sets it apart from from the traditional approach to Revelation? Mm -hmm. So. I take, uh, I take Revelation, first of all, I am not reading, uh, and I, and I outline this pretty clearly in the first chapter, I'm not claiming to be reading Revelation as a, a neutral or unbiased reader. I'm mm -hmm. reading Revelation as someone who has uh, a faith and a trust in the person of Jesus. And my faith and trust in person of Jesus is grounded in the Jesus that I encounter in the Gospels. That's who I worship. That's what my faith is about. So when I come to Revelation then, I am very specifically reading through the lens of that Jesus that I met, that I believe changed my life, that I believe changed my trajectory through the world. And so I'm looking for continuity between uh, those different experiences of, of mm -hmm. Jesus. And, and then when I, when I do that, I'm, I'm trying to bring together some scholarship around apocalyptic literature as a specific genre that has specific goals, that's doing specific things in the text. Uh -huh. And when I pair those two things together, what I find or what I have um, sort of tried to uncover in the book is sort of a, a mission statement in Revelation. It comes, um, you know, I talk about structure in the book, but it comes right around the middle of the book at the end of what I call the second cycle. Mm -hmm. But Revelation talks about now comes the time to destroy that which destroys God's earth. And that's where I feel like when we have bought into... Um, an apocalyptic narrative that comes to us from, you know, movies like Mad Max or The Road or all these types of things. What we hear is now comes the time to destroy the earth. But when you hear Revelation read through the lens of Jesus, who's talking about the kingdom of God and the transformation of the world, you hear something very different. You hear now comes the time for God to eliminate all of the things that tear at creation. Um, that, that there is an eschaton, there is an end to all things, but it's an end to everything that opposes God. Now, Revelation, we can parse that out in terms of what exactly does that mean, but the, the, the mission statement of Revelation is not an end to the earth or an end to you and I or an end to God's creation. It's actually the saving and the redeeming of all those things through the destruction of sin and lies and death and Hades and you know greed and selfishness and all of those things. And then once you get that kind of framework in Revelation and you start working backward, you start to see, okay how are images being built up and then subverted to bring us back to the story of Jesus over and over again. And that's where the title Upside Down Apocalypse comes from. Because Revelation reads like 
and, and people need to understand this, and most people do, that, that Revelation is not the only apocalypse out there. There's a ton of these writings from that sort of first century period, both Jewish and Christian. So it's a mm-hmm. big genre with a lot of people writing in this style. My argument is that Revelation is sort of leveraging a very popular form of literature to flip it upside down and say, hey, you're looking for the end of the world. God is looking for the end of everything that tears at the world. And once you get that, Revelation becomes this profoundly hopeful and I think even beautiful book that orients us back, brings us back to this Jesus who keeps saying, guys, the kingdom of God is alive, it's here, and it is slowly growing like a mustard seed, and it will eventually take over everything, and you will be the recipient and the benefit of all of that goodness. And reading Revelation that way, I think, becomes this like, you know, really, really encouraging book. And that's, that's what I'm hoping people actually get out of this. Yeah. When I, when I read your book, um, and, and I'm going to go back through it, and especially I got an advanced copy of it, and I'm looking forward to, to seeing the finished result. Uh, I was like, this is what I wanted to preach. I'm a bivocational pastor. Cool. This is what I've, I've never preached like through the book of Revelation systematically. And I've wanted to take that challenge up, but I wanted to do this kind of work where we're stepping away from the the timelines and the interpretation of symbols and all that, and just looking at it to find Jesus. And and you've done that work, and that's why I was so excited. Um, just to to quote from you here, you say the the double subversion is what makes Revelation so fascinating, and this was a real key concept, and you laid it out that. Revelation is all about setting things up and then subverting it, um, which is really common in today's media today. You see people taking, say, that the superhero genre is really popular, and then they mm. twist it. And, and you're expecting to see this, you know, a classic story between good and evil, and then all of a sudden you're, you're seeing something different. And you're taking that that frame of subversion and applying it. Um, let me just continue. It's using the genre of apocalypse to reveal what we don't see about our world while also smuggling in the hope of Christ to undermine the cynicism that has crept into the Christian community. And isn't that what we need? Something to undermine the cynicism? But I, I wasn't looking at Revelation for that. <laughs> yeah, and I think, this is, I think this is the thing, is if you, if you come to Revelation with your cynicism, you're going to walk away with your cynicism expanded, right? Like it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to feed you images mm-hmm. that lead into all of those sort of um, violent fantasies that you already have. Yeah. If you come to Revelation assuming already your trust in Jesus and looking for Jesus to show up and pop up, then what's going to happen is I think Revelation is going to keep setting you up and then it's going to pull the rug out from under you. And this is a big thing I, I talk about in the book is that Whenever you get into Revelation and you start feeling depressed and you start feeling, oh my goodness, like yes. this is too violent, it's too over the top. Like the key is you just have to read a little bit farther. And this is what I find frustrating with, like you mentioned, timelines and and uh, interpretations, is people get caught up on a verse or an image and they spend all their time trying to interpret that. And if they would just back up a, a couple steps and read a little bit farther, they would see that image then flipped upside down on them. Mm. And that's a, a really profound um, rhetorical device if, if it can get through to us. And, and I love how you said that even with um, in superhero genres and stuff. And you see this so much over and over again in, in all of our pop media right now. But yet we don't bring that same kind of curiosity sometimes to a book like Revelation. Or maybe I could say it this way, our curiosity gets the best of us in the specifics and it doesn't allow us to step back and, and read the narrative. And, you know, in the book, I, I go through the specifics of interpreting images, but really what I'm, I keep trying to get people to do is, is step back and read, read narratives, read arcs, mm-hmm. and, and read that way. And, uh, and then Revelation, I think, really opens up in some really beautiful ways. Yeah. I, you, you noted at one point um, that, that we shouldn't look at the book of Revelation and see these locusts as powerful as horses with tails like scorpions and imagine Apache helicopters and stinger missiles. I actually remember reading that, that like comic book as a kid (laughs) and, and seeing, seeing the, the characters talk about, Oh, this is what the book of revelation is saying. And your point is um, that, let me see here. You say, this isn't true. And if we center ourselves in the middle of the story, it's a surefire way to miss the point. 
So centering ourselves in the middle and trying to to first read ourselves into the story before we read the story, which is about Jesus and finding Jesus in it, we're going to end up with with seeing you know helicopters and nuclear holocaust in the Book of Revelation. Yeah, I, th- I think this is you know along with the the um, you know the idea of reading through Jesus. I think this is one of the uh, the other really important pieces. Um, for people to kind of ground themselves in before they come to a text like Revelation. Um, The reason we have Revelation in our Bible today is because communities thousands of years ago said this is an important text. Mm. If this text was all about Apache helicopters in the 21st century, no one in the first century would have said, oh, this is an important text for us to preserve. They would have read it and been like, I don't get it. And they would have tossed it somewhere. So the very fact that you and I have the opportunity to read this text, I think tells us that these images have to be more than just very chrono-specific images that relate to us in our world today. Um, it, it means that they have multiple meanings. It means that they meant something to people in the first century. It means that they meant something to people in the fifth in the, in century and, and even today. And this is where... I tried not to get bogged down in the book with these, like, if you, if you jump on Wikipedia, you'll find, ah, are you a preterist? Are you a <laughs> yeah. futurist? Are you an idealist? These types of things. I can, I can define those terms a little bit. A preterist would be someone who says, oh, all the images relate to something specifically in the first century. An idealist would say, um, all the images are metaphorical, and they speak to a future eschaton, and they shouldn't be interpreted historically. Um, you know, and, and then there's all kinds of different, you know, nomenclature in the middle there. Yes. But I, I don't actually think those are helpful because I think the point of an apocalyptic book is that it can speak to multiple experiences of the world. So, you know, you talk about war, you, you talk about empire, you talk about the ways that governments, you know, um, uh, oppress uh, dissent and they, for, they force people into um, certain ways of living. Those images obviously meant something to people in the first century under the reign of the emperor Domitian. Mm -hmm. They obviously meant something to us today when we continue to see dictators rise up and impose their view on others. But to narrow the imagery down to, oh, it means this, and it's specifically this, at this year, at this time when I'm alive, is a weirdly arrogant way of reading a text that's been around for 2,000 years. Like... You know, it, it has meant something beautiful. It, it, it's not that it doesn't mean something to you today. Yeah. Um, it's not that Revelation doesn't speak to what's happening in Russia, in Ukraine right now, right? Because we are seeing a, a violent leader impose his views on others. Revelation is speaking to that. But in no way is Revelation about Vladimir Putin. Or, or did John imagine writing about, you know, the invasion of Ukraine, it speaks to the ways that over and over again in human history, we keep falling into the same traps. And the only way that you can interpret those images accurately and understand what they do mean today, because they do mean something, is to go back to uh, the original grounding of those images contextually in the original readers and, and writers who crafted these things for us. They weren't just speaking about the Roman Empire. In fact, I argue in the book that, that John the Revelator thinks the Roman Empire is, is, is chaff. Like, he uses imagery from Rome to say, hey, we got to stop doing this and we got to stop falling for these narratives. Mm-hmm. But he believes that Rome will be blown away just as every successive human empire will. Uh, but the lesson from that needs to be grounded in his experience of the particular empire that he saw as evil and that he saw as oppressive. Once we get that, then we can see it over and over again through all of our lives happening again and again. But yeah, this, this chronocentric, I think, is the term I used in there. But sort of centering ourselves in our moment, um, I know how intoxicating that is, right? Because it feels good to be the center of things. Yeah, well, a lot, but of, if, people, a lot of people take, and especially from, from a more conservative, fundamentalist background where I'm coming from, we, we feel like if you... If you don't look at scripture literally, you somehow lose that grounding. You somehow lose mm-hmm. that personal connection. Um, and whether you're talking about Revelation or the Book of Genesis or somewhere in between, 
can you can you speak to that that concern that that some people are probably thinking like wait you're saying we can't take we can't take revelation literally or it doesn't really mean anything specific or how do you how do you help somebody work through that that kind of roadblock or that hang up yeah i think this is a tricky one but i think one of the things we have to recognize pretty quickly is that if you say a locust with a tail uh, like a scorpion and a face like a man is a, a, an attack helicopter. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fine as an interpretation, but you should not delude yourself into thinking that that is a literal interpretation. That is the opposite of a literal interpretation. When we hear, you know, the, the beast emerging with seven heads and one has been fatally wounded, and we say, well, that is clearly, you know, a one world government and the Antichrist. That's fine if you want to go down that road, but that is the opposite of literal. That is, you are saying, I have chosen what I think this metaphor is pointing to. Nobody, at least that I have come across in all of my research, interprets Revelation literally, thinking that huge locusts are actually going to attack Mm -hmm. the world. They all interpret that as a historical experience in their particular moment in the world. And I think this is sort of um, a a grounding piece that we all need to admit to ourselves, is that nobody, none of us interpret Revelation literally. What we do sometimes is we interpret um, chronologically or chronocentrically to say it is speaking to literal events in our lifetime. But we're all reading metaphors, and we all acknowledge that. None of us believe uh, that, that Satan is a great red dragon literally somewhere up in the sky. And once we can kind of admit that to ourselves, then we can have the more important conversation of, okay, well, what do those metaphors point to? What's your interpretation? What's mine? And how do we wrestle that out? Mm-hmm. But as and what, long as... what metaphor is most faithful to the overall gist of absolutely. the text? Because it's one thing to say, well, I think I think the Mark of the Beast 666 is referring to a, a barcode tattoo. Mm-hmm. And does that fit in with the narrative? That's not taking it literally. It's another thing to say, I think 666 is referring to a kind of allegiance to empire that that John is striking against. Which one of those non-literal interpretations is actually consistent with the message of the text? And as you started off, with the message of Jesus. Right. And I think that's the thing is if, if, if you know, if, if people are reading Revelation, if they can admit to themselves, okay, 666 is, we're all talking about what we think it points to, but none of us are interpreting it literally. Then at least we can have an honest conversation back and forth about, okay, well, how are we being honest or how are we being faithful to the text and faithful to the story? But if somebody is holding the idea that my interpretations are literal, then it's hard to even sort of begin an honest conversation about these things. Yeah. And and then the next game that we often play is, well, I'm not quite literal, but I'm more literal than you are. Right. Therefore, <laughs> I'm more faithful to the text. And, you know, I feel like Jesus is standing in the corner like, wait, what about me? Isn't, isn't the, the faithfulness of our interpretation, at least in some sense, dependent on, on finding Jesus in that text and the dependency on centering it around, well, the story of Jesus, because that's, <laughs> that's what we're about, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I mean, you know, all of the specifics around how to interpret ancient literature and how to understand the genre of apocalypse for me, I mean, ultimately, this book and this work is grounded in that specific idea that the Jesus that I've chosen to follow in my life is the Jesus of the Gospels. Therefore, I don't want (laughs) to believe in a future Jesus that is different or is antithetical to the Jesus that I have fallen in love with. Mm -hmm. Um, Therefore, I'm going to read Revelation very specifically through the Jesus of the Gospels, because that is, I believe, the only way that is consistent with with the faith posture that I've taken as a Christian. Yeah, you use the word, I I want to, or I don't want to read this. Um, I totally understand what you're saying, but it's not even an, oh, well, I don't like... I don't like a hardcore Jesus. I remember, um, well, mm-hmm. you, being from the west coast of the continent, you you may have heard of Mark Driscoll, and and his his description um, back in the day when I was listening to his sermons of Jesus, you know, with a tattoo and and blood and fire coming out of his eyes. 
that that was the Jesus he wanted to see. But it's not a matter of, well, pick your Jesus, which one do you want? It's which one is, which portrait of Jesus is most faithful? Yeah, most faithful to the Jesus who is... To the is, overall testimony, yeah. Exactly, is, is the Logos of God who, who walks through the earth, right? Yeah. Um, if, if your Christianity is predicated on the idea that Jesus is fine, but ultimately what I'm here for is a different Jesus that's going to come back, you know? Like I've literally, you know, Mark Driscoll as an example, I've heard this from preachers that, that when Jesus returns, there will be no more Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah. Well, if your faith is predicated on a Jesus that has not shown up in history yet, but you believe one day will, I think you need to acknowledge that that, that, is, a, that is a different Christianity from the historical Christianity that is rooted in the person of Jesus who walked through ancient Palestine. Hmm. And, and if you're hoping for something different, then I think, you know, I mean, I'm not the one who gets to decide what, what the term Christian means, but I think at some level you should acknowledge that, that you have now stepped outside of the orthodox faith of Christ that's, that's grounded in the person of Jesus. And I would also argue that if we do justice to our interpretation of Revelation, and again, we step back from the specific words or verses to look at narrative arcs, I would say, you know, the example you've brought up, uh, Jesus in Revelation, when he returns on the white horse, and mm -hmm. he's covered in blood, and, you know, he's got this tattoo on his leg, and, you know, he wields this sword that comes from his mouth. If we do justice to those images, we see they are entirely consistent with the Jesus of the Gospels. Yeah. That this Jesus does not hold or wield out a weapon with which he lops off heads and, you know, comes back John Wick, you know, you know, mad because, you know, we killed his puppy. The sword from his mouth is a very common biblical image for testimony. Um, it's a New Testament image in Ephesians. It's, a, it's an image from the Psalms. It's an image from Isaiah. But it always speaks to somebody's testimony in the world and the way that truth spoken in the right moment at the right time can cut through all of our lies and all of our illusions. Yeah. That's what Jesus wields, and he shows up at the battle covered in blood. There's no blood of his enemies in that image. There is only his blood of sacrifice when he shows up in the battle there. And so again, if we want a Jesus who looks violent, we're going to read that into the text. If we read the story of Jesus, and we read his way into the text, and we step back and we say, okay, where does this image start? Where does this image end? I think we find something that's entirely consistent with the same Jesus that we first fell in love with. Yeah. And and even the the images some of them are violent. Mm -hmm. But but the violence is against empire, it's against Satan, it's against the devastation wrought on his creation. And of course, as you noted, he subverts it because if he does have a sword, it's a sword coming out of his out of his mouth. Yeah, there's, there's lots of violence in Revelation. And I think um, for those of us who come from peace traditions, mm -hmm. and, not, and not just Anabaptists, but those of us who want a thoroughly nonviolent theology and, and place in the world, um, I think one of the reasons Revelation is really important for us is that Revelation is not afraid to name the violence of the world. Yes, And I do think that sometimes in... Anabaptist circles, in third way circles, in peace traditions, there can be a, a commitment to nonviolence, but also sort of a, an, a stepping back from the violence of the world and an avoidance of the violence of the world. And what that can do then is disengage us from the activism Absolutely. that we need to step into in, sort of, in, in, in the sense of making the world less violent and moving it towards the kingdom of God. Um, pretending that violence isn't there, pretending that injustice and oppression isn't there doesn't help anyone. And Revelation forces us to acknowledge those things in the world. Um, you know, when the riders come, the riders of the apocalypse in, in the seven seals, again, I, you know, I interpret in the book, but what we're seeing here is what happens when empire begins to crumble in on itself. And in some ways, Revelation is not just even naming the violence of, oh, look, Rome is bad and look what Rome does. It's actually saying, actually, Rome creates a pseudo peace in the world 
by enforcing peace at the point of a sword and uh, killing off the people that you don't like. And a lot of the times you are complicit in that because the violence of the world serves you. And Revelation now comes along and says, look, if we actually want to transition to the kingdom of God, a lot of these violent systems that keep other violence at bay, all of that is going to need to crumble in on itself. And that's going to be chaotic and it's going to be difficult. And there's going to be tribulations that come out of that. But it's the only way to move towards the true peace of God. Yeah. Because a lot of our peace is predatory and it's predicated on the idea that somebody else suffers. You know, to get political here, like I'm a, I'm a white man living in Canada, living on um, indigenous lands. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the peace and prosperity that I benefit from has come from the fact that my government has enforced a prosperity and a peace for me at the expense of other peoples. Mm-hmm. Revelation makes it possible for me to acknowledge that and face that and realize that for the kingdom of God to come, some of the peace that I am used to is, is going to need to fall away. Yeah. And there's going to need to be a reckoning with that. Yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things, that, and I love. I actually work on a, a Indian reservation here, and one of the things I hear from so many friends of mine who who challenge, like, oh, well, you know, everybody is living on somebody else's land, right? You know, everybody came in and pushed somebody else off the land. That's just how things work. And I'm like, that's the point. This yes. <laughs> is what empire does, and this is what revelation is about. It's saying the way things have always worked is coming to an end, and Jesus wants to put an end to it, and he wants us to begin that process. I want to read one more quote from you that I, I really loved. Um, you're right. What if Satan doesn't care about sides so long as we keep finding someone new to fight? What if Satan will gladly drive out Satan if it means we discover a new adversary to hate? After all, in that case, Satan still runs the show. Jesus says, your accusation is flawed, but more importantly, you have missed the way that evil anchors its hooks in you. Satan is only truly defeated once we sneak in and take away his power over us because the way to bind Satan is to refuse to play his game. I really love that. The way to bind Satan, the way to undermine him is to refuse to play his game. In a lot of conservative Anabaptist tradition, that means becoming the quiet of the land as the the appellation was given uh, to, to Russian Mennonites, that the quiet of the land but you challenge and say, no, we need to be engaged. And, and um, for a lot of my listeners, I think that that probably doesn't mean um, like political engagement. Many are conscientious about not voting, and I appreciate that. But there are still ways to engage. So what are some, what are some things that we can do to start undermining Satan's kingdom now, to start kind of living out of the, the revelation, the upside-down apocalypse you, you've shared with us? Yeah, f- first of all, yeah, I think this this concept of um, the idea that the Satan isn't interested in um, that that we fight the wrong battles necessarily. It's, it's he's interested in the idea that we keep fighting battles, you know, and yeah. that we have to sort of step out of that cycle because this happens all the time. We we find the bad person and we work on them and we get them out. And then Satan's like, fine, I'll just pop up over here and I'll, and I'll get you to, to be angry at this person and ostracize this person. And that is, once you become aware of that in your life, um, that you're, you're just, you're, you're constantly being goaded into being angry. You're constantly being goaded into um, pushing back and fighting your neighbor. Yeah, once you like become aware of that. the parable of the wheat and tares, for example. Oh man, that's a great one. Yeah, this idea, like, stop. Your job is not to tear up anyone. Your job is to tend the field and do your best. But once you are aware of that in your life, you start to see it in so many places, in your relationships, in your politics, and all kinds of things. And I think, I think that's a, a really important piece and one that I'm continuing to work on in my life. Now, when it comes to the politics of it, um, I'm going to argue, you know, politics means different things to different people. I'm very sympathetic to the idea of, of, of non-voting. Um, of the idea of, you know, Christians not being in positions of authority in terms of, um, you know, policing and legal mm-hmm. enforcement and politicians. Um, I'm actually, um, I'm not sure I would, I would completely align myself there, but I'm very, you know, close to those ways of thinking that, that I'm not sure that actually is a Christian response. I don't think that means that we are not involved in politics, though. 
because politics is not um, who votes and who's in control and who's you know running the show. Politics is all the ways that we engage with the principalities and the powers around us. And yes, there are people who who do feel like, hey, I'm going to disengage from that as much as possible completely. That's been a response that goes all the way back pre-Christian to the Essenes of, of yeah. the Jewish communities who did the same types of things. I understand that. There are ways that you can refuse to vote, refuse to be a politician, refuse to be a police officer, and still advocate for the voiceless in our societies. Um, that can be um, ways that you actually take up the cause, um, you know, creating better access to food and housing in your neighborhoods. Um, that can be... Uh, you know, advocating <coughs> um, for those things to change uh, politically in, in, in your governments and your neighborhoods. But, you know, I'll give you an example here. Um, at the church, we have what's called a community cupboard. It's a sort of initiative throughout our city here. And we provide food mm -hmm. uh, just in a 24-7 available pantry that's yep. at the side of the church. And, you know, there's, there's dry goods, there's the foods, we're putting a fridge in there this summer so that we can do uh, fresh produce and meats and those types of things. Mm -hmm. But we've engaged a couple of things in that. We've engaged growers uh, who are local, um, where we've, we've made some deals to, to purchase uh, stuff that they're unable to sell, you know, to give away. We've also engaged the neighborhood around us, not just our faith community, but our neighborhood, mm -hmm. to both take what they need, and refill that when, when they have uh, resources available to them. That's a political act, because you are saying access to food should not be behind an economic uh, barrier. Mm -hmm. does, does it, is it okay that people who have more money you know, can go and buy fancier food and access the grocery store and all those things? I think that's fine. We live in a capitalist society. But the most basic element should be a community that choose to live out of a political ethic that says we are going to share, we're going to give what we can, we're going to receive what we can, and there should be no shame behind that. And there should also be no barriers to accessing that. So you don't have to come to the church, ring the doorbell, and explain why you have a need. You go and you take what you need and you, you give what you can. That is a politic in the world. It has mm -hmm. nothing to do with us voting. It has nothing to do with us um, advocating for a candidate who's going to... Um, try to enforce our policies on the rest of the world. But we are demonstrating a kingdom politic in those choices and the ways that we use our resources. And so I think all of us, regardless of our convictions on policing, on politicians, mm -hmm. on voting, should be finding ways to demonstrate how we live out a political ethic in, in the world around us. I think that goes as far as things like this, when the church has interactions, because we're in an urban environment. So when we have interactions with uh, you know, people from um, the community that are unhoused, uh, people that have uh, different uh, mental health, different things that are showing up in different ways, we are not trying to you know, call the police and have uncomfortable situations removed from you know, our yeah. comfortable, you know, suburban, you know, you know, <laughs> lives here. We're engaging with the complexity of what it means to live in community with people who don't have the same uh, experience of mental health supports, who don't have the same experience of, of socioeconomic status around us. And that makes things uncomfortable at times. Mm -hmm. It makes us, it forces us to engage with people in different ways. But our politic is saying we are not going to pass that off to policing to make it more comfortable for us. We're going to engage with what we can learn and how we learn from those people and how we also welcome them into mm -hmm. community in ways that stretch us and challenge us. That's such and a great that's example. That's a politic. Yeah. Right. But but that's a politic. That's not just a, a um yeah, I, 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 hopefully that makes sense that that yeah. politics is not just about voting, it's about ways that we choose to engage with the communities around us because that will then set up an expression of kingdom of God where people can look to or they can push back against if, if they need to. But you're going to become a flashpoint for those types of conversations in community. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love that example with like not just calling the police if there's somebody who's drunk or mentally unwell or or just, you know, causing a problem in your <laughs> gentrified community. Instead saying, what would 
what would Jesus do? What can I do to undermine the empire response? One thing we've learned for sure in North America over the last, okay, specifically the United States, I won't put that on you Canadians, you know, in the last five years is that police don't do a good job of dealing with somebody with a mental health issue or a medical issue. More often than not, I shouldn't say more often than not, but often they end up dead or they end up injured. And so I'm grabbing a hold of this one because I've been in so many conversations with my Mennonite friends who are like, Mm, do you think it's right if somebody's breaking into your house? Do you think it's right to call the police? <laughs> right, and it's like I, I understand what you're coming from with this hypothetical, but I think you're actually missing missing the politic, the bigger picture. It's not just oh, we have a commitment to nonviolence, so we can't do that because our church standard says not to do this. It's what would actually undermine empire. Yeah, and you know, is there a place for police in the world? Sure, that's a thing. And and in <laughs> violent situations, yeah, if, you know, if my house is being broken into, but I don't think I don't think as followers of Christ, our first response should be, hey, to hear someone down at the door and immediately think, well, I either have to call the police or I have to get a gun. Yeah, you know, are there ways that we can embody again that politic in the world that engages somebody to say, what is what is behind this and where is this and where have you reached in a place in your life um, that that you are doing this thing in this moment mm-hmm. and how have i you know at some point looking back how have i contributed to that by mm-hmm. you know and I, i'm not saying i am a, a bad person for this but but as a as a person who has the resources to buy a house in a neighborhood that's gentrified have i contributed to the posture of people in the world that feel like my only response is to break into Jeremy's garage and to steal what I can to sell to you know to get what I need. Mm-hmm. Is that good? Should they do that? No. Um, should I just you know not lock my doors and allow everything to be taken? Well, I'm, I'm not sure I can afford to do that either. Yeah. But embracing but I think that my tension, response, exactly, yeah. and wrestling with it. I think that's exactly. where we actually face into where are we complicit in a in a piece we call it that that is actually predatory. And is predicated on the fact that some people are always going to pay the price for the peace that the rest of us enjoy. That's what Revelation, when it names so much of the violence of the world, forces us to confront. Is the peace that we think that we have right now dependent on somebody else paying the price for it? You know, and I and I talk about this in the book. Like, if if the emperor thinks he's a god. You know, and he's a little bit wacky and he has all of his entourage that praise him and worship him. But for the most part, he stays in Rome and he stays away from us and he provides us roads and he provides policing that ensures we can do trade and we can do business. Do we really care if he's out there expanding the borders and and crushing other people groups? That's a real question that Christians were facing in the first century. Mm. Because for the most part... You know, and this is, again, what we have to understand historically. For the most part, Christians were not being persecuted under the reign of the Roman Empire. It was sporadic, and there were moments, and, and we shouldn't ignore that. But systematic persecution of Christians was not nearly to the level of the systematic persecution of those people groups that lived on the borders of the empire that, that the, the emperor was really interested in crushing. Mm-hmm. We, we were pretty small, pretty secondary, you know, concerns to the empire and, and you know, in his, his sort of um, uh, military conquest of, of the nations. And so the Christians, you know, particularly in churches like Laodicea, where John comes out and right and says, like, you guys are doing super well. Empire's working for you. Yeah. Are you willing to face into the fact that for actual peace to come, some of the things that are benefiting you are going to need to go away? And, uh, and I think that's really challenging for me and for, you know, churches like mine, um, you know, to acknowledge that, that, hmm. that, yeah, real peace, real peace for everyone, right? Because, because that's ultimately what Revelation talks about, is that everything that tears at creation is going to need to go. So peace for everyone is going to need some uh, balancing out of the scales that probably not going to be good for me on a pure sort of economic basis. Yeah, that's really good. Before we wrap up, I want to kind of look at the very end of Revelation 
This is this is where, just to be totally honest, I've preached from the beginning of Revelation with the letters, <laughs> and then the end of Revelation with you know the New Jerusalem coming down, and the rest of that stuff um, has been a little bit scary for me. So, if you're not taking a quote-unquote literal interpretation, do you actually believe that the streets of heaven are paved with gold? Do you actually believe that God will wipe away tears from our eyes? What does eternal rest look like? Mm-hmm. So... Well, I'll say yes and no to that. I mean, I, I do believe that God will wipe away tears from every eye. I, I do believe that that is where history is heading, um, that God is going to overcome all of the evil inside of us. God is going to overcome all of the, the greed and selfishness and sin that has, that has torn at creation, and that, that will come to an end. And there will be some form of the kingdom of God um, here on earth. Do I believe the streets of gold, or streets of uh, heaven will be paved with gold? Um, I actually think this is a really profoundly beautiful image in Revelation, because I think, again, when Revelation describes this future eschaton of peace in the world, it is again subverting our expectations. Streets of gold, to me, does not say, look how rich we're all going to be. Streets of Gold to me says, look at all the things that you've chased for all of your life and look how worthless they will be in heaven. Mm. Asphalt, you know, that, that's where gold will reside now. It won't be on jewelry and it won't be on kings. It'll be, it'll be for you to walk on top of. Literally, the, 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 the kingdom of heaven, in, in that new Jerusalem, the footings are all of these precious gems and stones. Like, to me, this is again, this final subversion where the writer is saying, everything you thought was important, that gets buried underground and trod underfoot. What will matter is, is the tears being wiped away. What will matter is the fact that you can come and go as much as you want. What will matter is that flourishing will flow into the cities, yes. or, or flow out of the cities, sorry, rather than into the cities, right? Because that's, that's been the model for all of our life is resources, water, food, money, funnels to where it already is. Now it says, oh, it will go out. It will move away. Those that have will share. Those are the types of things that I think are sort of, you know, if you want to use that term literal, that's what will literally happen in the end and in the eschaton. But a lot of the imagery around streets of gold, you know, foundations of emeralds, all these types of things, those are pointing us to a subversion of what we pursue and what we think is important. And I, and I love that Revelation even in its last gasps and chapters, he's still trying to say, guys, flip it upside down. Yes. Think differently. There's a bigger picture here for you. Yeah. Yeah. Subversion and finding Jesus at the center, those are really core core lessons that we can take away as we approach Revelation. And I just want to say about the book, um, from my experience, We've we've used some pretty heady language like eschaton and such, but the book is really easy to read. It's really enjoyable. It's funny, sometimes a little cringe dad humor, but it, it's really great. <laughs> um, and I didn't come away feeling like you were saying, oh, no, 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 you can't think about Revelation. You, you can't think about streets paved with gold. Instead, you were inviting us to use our imaginations to explore this book and to get inside the story rather than looking at it as a collection of data points. So thanks for, thanks for writing the book and for being with us. Can you just um, tell us where the best place to get a hold of your, your book is? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for that. And I, I'm glad that it came across with that tone because that's very much what I wanted. So I, I, like, this is the first time I've written a popular level book. And I spent most of my life sort of torn between academia yeah, uh, you know, writing my thesis, which was around apocalyptic literature. So I have, you know, I have some background and expertise in this area. And then writing sermons, you know, for an actual community of people that, mm-hmm. that live and breathe together. And so this was trying to find, you know, that, that middle ground space in between. So um, I'm glad that at least that, that voice, you know, did resonate with you on that. Uh, but yeah, the, the book comes out July 5th. It's available wherever fine books are sold. I think that's <laughs> the line that I'm supposed to use or something like that. Um, but from what I've heard actually from the publisher is that, um, uh, the print copies are actually have been sent out to distributors. So you can order, uh, directly from Herald Press and Menno Media, uh, but Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Chapters and all those places, um, should have actually received copies and, and are actually sending them out now. So you may actually receive it before the, the July 5th release. 
Um, so that's that's kind of exciting. I I'm, I'm interested to see if if people are you know actually receiving copies in their mailbox or now. But I got a copy from the publisher, which was it was kind of cool to see this actually in in print and and ready to go. So and I, and I also want to say I was very grateful for um, people like yourself that have you know taken a, just a random guy from Calgary and, and had a conversation about this. Uh, but also the people who, who wrote endorsements for the book, uh, people were just very gracious and, and I was really appreciative of that. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks for your time, Jeremy. And do check the book out. We'll include a link in our notes. Thanks for listening. Thank you. That Jesus Podcast is part of the Kingdom Outpost Podcast Network. For more articles, podcasts, and other resources, go to kingdomoutpost.org.